0: good morning Um, we are continuing in Daniel today um, and we're going to read from Daniel 2 starting in verse 31 so you can read along with me you saw O king and behold a great image this image mighty and of exceeding brightness Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand— and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Blessed be the word of the Lord.
1: Amen, amen. We got a lot of scripture to unpack this morning. You guys read beautifully. If you're just joining us, we are in uh, an Old Testament series going through the book of of Daniel and the theme that we are extracting out of this book really is the the theme that's presented to us it's the theme of exile it's late 7th century BC around 605 ish Judah has turned her back on her covenant relationship with God and after repeated warning through the prophets of God God has seen fit to punish Judah for her sin of rebellion by sending the nation of Babylon to overthrow Jerusalem, and when they do that, they—I mean—they just destroy the temple. They take all the artifacts out of the temple, and they actually take many of the people, particularly many of the most noble people in Jerusalem, into captivity. And so, when we read the book of Daniel, what we're doing is uh, God is giving us a picture of the captivity of Israel. This this narrative is is mostly about. Israel in exile, but it also gives us about a 70-year slice of the life of Daniel's life. And so in many ways, this is a biography, a biography of of this uh, unique young man. One of the unique things about Daniel is that we get a distinctively God-centered view of history. Daniel narrates the actions of world history as a stage on which God is not only acting, but he's completely sovereign. That God is calling the shots. He is Um, described as being intimate in the lives of individual people, that he is intimate in the, the happenings of the nations of the world, and he is the one that's in control. Scholars also call the book of Daniel resistance literature. It's designed to help people like you and me, the people of God, living in a world that's in opposition to us. And in that regard, the book, first of all, calls us to perseverance, in the midst of a hostile world, it tells us don't give up. It calls us to faithfulness, to stand firm. Even though we dwell in a culture that's different from our intended culture, even though we live in a culture that's increasingly uh, in opposition to our ethic, we're called to stand firm. And lastly, this book contains a message of hope because it sets forth for us God's judgment on the kingdoms of the world. And that really is the angle that we're looking at today, this idea of uh, of that we can have hope in exile. All right, you you just read a lot of verses, and so you've already noticed Daniel 2 is is a, a long chapter. And there's a lot of details that we could get caught up in, because not only do we just have the narrative of what's happening, for the first time in Daniel, we get a little bit of prophecy. And uh, there's lots of interpretations on that. And so here's what we're going to do. In in, in fact, not just today, but as we continue in this series, we're going to be covering about a a chapter of Daniel a week. But what we want to do is not so much focus on the the nitty-gritty details so much as as hover above it and look at the big picture. And the big picture for the whole book of Daniel, and particularly as we look at these these first few chapters, is, is this central question of, How can we as Christians sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Fred Hammond, like the legend gospel singer, sees this beautiful song. Y'all should go look it up on Spotify. How can we sing when we're in a strange land? I didn't mean to sing this morning, but I mean, wasn't worship awesome? That's what the psalmist says. How can Christians sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's the question that's relevant for all of us. If this home, is this, if this world that we live in is not our home and we're in exile, then how can we flourish? How can we thrive? How can we be faithful in a place that's, that's ultimately strange? When God has uh, an eternal kingdom that awaits us. And, and here's the bottom line, at least for today, that in the, in, in the midst of the rise and falls of, uh, of world empires, the reign of good, good, uh, good and bad rulers, In good times and in bad times, the kingdom of God is going to be established. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds of, of plants that grow, and yet this tree grows to be one of the biggest in the forest. That's how the kingdom of God is. Ultimately, it's going to triumph throughout the whole earth and the lives of ordinary people like you and me, and that is our great hope as people who are in exile all right, so we got a lot of scripture. I'm going to sort of focus our, our efforts this morning on, on three things that I want you to pay attention to. The first is an existential crisis. The second is a bearer of truth. And thirdly, a kingdom that will not prevail. As the uh, has already uh, opened up for us, this passage begins in a strange way in that it begins with a dream. The dream uh, that God gives to king Nebuchadnezzar and it leads to an existential crisis. Let's go back at the beginning and see what happens in the midst of this dream. Verse 1, in the year of the reign in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Verse 6, But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you don't make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I'll show you that you can uh, and I'll and, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on the earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the, the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So here's what we see at, at at the very beginning. There's a crisis in the king's court, right? King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he has several dreams. Not only does he not understand what he dreamt, the dream gave him some trauma. He's got like dream trauma, if that's a I don't know, if that's a thing, right? I mean, he can't even sleep because of uh, of the the dream that he that he experiences. So he summons the wise men to interpret his dreams for him, but interestingly, he won't tell them the, the, the nature of the dream. And there's a lot of speculation as to why Nebuchadnezzar chooses this method. Why not tell the, the guys that are equipped to, to help you uh, the, the, the depth and breadth of what you experience so that they can then give you, give you counsel? And many have said that either Nebuchadnezzar can't remember the dream, or maybe he just doesn't have, it, have the wherewithal to, to articulate it? I really don't know, but most likely, I think we can get this from the text, he just doesn't trust his own advisors not to deceive him in the interpretation. The wise men are, I mean, they're just like petrified at what Nebuchadnezzar is demanding. I mean, nobody calls wise men in and asks them for, firstly, the dream and the interpretation. I mean, counselors aren't supposed to be able to do all that, right? I mean, for those of you that have ever been to a therapist or a counselor, counseling is not bad. But here's, here's, the, here's the, 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 the thing with counselors. They, I mean, they deal with the presenting issue. You don't usually go to a, a counselor and say, all right, can you tell me my presenting issue and also what I'm supposed to do with it? And, and these wise men give uh, Nebuchadnezzar a little bit of pushback. It's like, this, this is an impossible task. And even as they give pushback, Nebuchadnezzar gets even angrier. And so he, 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 he orders the unthinkable. He's like, all right, if you can't help me with what I want you to tell me and interpret, then, then I don't need you. I'm just going to like kill all of you. He decides to have all of his wise men Slaughter, and of course, that's where Daniel and the Hebrew friends come in. The message comes to Daniel by Ariot, the uh, the like the secret service agent close to the king. And in the in, in the process of Ariot coming actually to kill Daniel and and his friends, uh, Daniel goes into action. Before we get to the action that Daniel takes, I, I want us to explore a little bit about uh, what's going on in the text, particularly with with. Nebuchadnezzar. And first, I think we see the frailty of a wrong worldview. Nebuchadnezzar may have been the most powerful man on the earth at his time, but he's absolutely undone by this dream. In this narrative, Nebuchadnezzar is representative and reminiscent of a worldling. That's an old school term. You probably won't hear that word used by anybody this week, but uh, here's what it means. It's a person, albeit a sophisticated person, who who has everything, and that is representative of of Nebuchadnezzar. Think about it. He's the ruler of the biggest, baddest nation on earth and one of the greatest nations in the history of nations on the earth. He has everything he could dream of. He has fame and power and wealth and influence and rulership. But here's the thing that Nebuchadnezzar does not have. He doesn't have peace. And he doesn't have peace because he's come to this moment of existential crisis that he can't do anything about. All that was right about life for Nebuchadnezzar comes to an end as a result of this dream. This dream like undid him. His world no longer makes sense. In Nebuchadnezzar's worldview, he's basically been propped up by kingship and all its accoutrements being served having uh, nations fall just by sending his army out and telling them, hey, destroy this nation and bring the people to me. And, of course, all the affluence and the, uh, the luxury of, of being the ruler of a nation. But more than that, Nebuchadnezzar himself has been propped up like a god. We'll see that in chapter 3, that he is one who uh, in his days built statues and he required his people to bow down to him. And so he's treated very much like a god. And yet, what this dream reveals is that underneath it all, he's fundamentally, I mean, kind of like some of us, insecure. Not only insecure, he's hostile, he's angry, frustrated. Frustrated by the lack of ability uh, to control his own destiny. And that's why you see him lashing out at his own wise men. Sadly, we don't have to be the pagan ruler of the most powerful nation on earth during its day to have Nebuchadnezzar's problem. You and me can be in any role in life and be taken captive by this insidious problem of being a worldling, which very simply is to to, to cater to worldliness. You can be a student, stay-at-home mom, a faithful government employee, a member of the armed forces. You can be a church member and be a—did I miss any of y'all? You can be any of us in this room. As long as life is propped up by affluence, prosperity, and a little bit of luxury, as long as we have everything going well for us, as long as our houses keep appreciating 5% every year, as long as our stock options continue to be advantageous to us, as long as our kids are getting at least a B in school, like, like, come on, kids, give me a B. As long as everything stays positive, then a lot of times we have this perspective that, life, that, that the world that we've constructed can maintain its meaning. The unfortunate thing, it, it doesn't. I mean, that doesn't happen, right? There's always, there always comes a moment of existential need. There's a crisis. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it's a bad dream. And that bad dream throws his whole world into chaos. And so the, the practical lesson for us is firstly one of framework and, and worldview. Everybody goes through crises, don't we? The inevitable crisis hits and we start to say, what does my life even mean? How can I make sense of what's going on? An existential crisis means that what you've based, your life, perhaps your career, your your philosophy of how things come about just isn't working and there's nothing that you can do to make it work. When your framework of, uh, of the world doesn't make sense because it's propped up by affluence and happiness. When those things go away, you have to face the nakedness of who you've made yourself out to be. And it's unfortunate when it all comes crashing down. And that's Nebuchadnezzar's world. And I would say if that's you, you too need a new worldview, one that makes sense of life when it doesn't go quite right. And so in our narrative, here comes Daniel. Verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15, he declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the, the wise men of Babylon. Then verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. We can't can't help but notice Daniel's character, the amazing calm that he seems to have even after he receives the news of a death sentence, not just to the wise men of Babylon, but to him and his three Hebrew friends. The king had ordered that all the wise men should be killed because they weren't able to both give him a dream, the dream that he had dreamt, and its interpretation and Ariot comes to Daniel, and Daniel very calmly says to Ariot, Well, what's the urgency with the king's command? This just doesn't make sense. And I think we're supposed to see uh, the confidence of Daniel in the, in the situation that he's in. But I, but I think the way to interpret this is Daniel has confidence not just in himself and in his abilities, although he's probably a, a pretty cool, smart, intelligent guy. Daniel is showing us his confidence in his God. Daniel knew how God had gifted him. I think it goes back to to Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, that Daniel was taken as a person of nobility that already had a lot going for him. And then when he gets to Babylon, being immersed and socialized into this this culture, assimilated into uh, all that was Babylon, he learned the language. On top of that, he read their books, and God gave him a little bit of wisdom on top of that. And so Daniel knew how God had gifted him. But more than that, Daniel had not forgotten God's word. Even in Babylon, being forced to assimilate into a culture that wasn't his own, Daniel still remembered God's word. He knew that God was good, even in his suffering in exile. Daniel remembered what the prophet Jeremiah had said about their lives in exile. Jeremiah 29 7 but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. I think Daniel is clinging to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. And it's with that viewpoint that Daniel didn't panic, but he did go into actions, and a few things are are worth us paying attention to. I, I think we're supposed to notice Daniel's wisdom in his response to the king's decree. Daniel shows what I would call biblical wisdom, Uh, You can get wisdom in two ways. Either God can gift it to you like he does Solomon. And if you're reading with us in our community Bible reading, we're in 1 Kings chapter 2-3 and where uh, Solomon gets the kingdom and he prays to to God, just, Lord, help me do what I'm supposed to do as a young man leading this huge nation. Uh, And he asks for wisdom. And what does God do? God grants him wisdom. And then he gives him all the other things he doesn't ask. He gives him affluence and he gives him peace and, uh, and triumph as a, as a king over a great nation. And so God can gift us wisdom, but biblical wisdom shows us we can also learn it. In fact, some would define wisdom as the skill of living life. The, the, the writings of Proverbs would tell us that one of the ways that we gain wisdom is by availing ourselves to God and his word. One of my Seminary professors at RTS, uh, Ligon Duncan, who happens to be the, the chancellor, he says these, these words about wisdom. He says, wisdom is the fruit of knowing the word of God and living out the word in our lives. Knowing the word and living out the word. What would happen if we availed ourselves to God and his word so much that it became a part of us and then we lived it out? I think that's what's happening. It's not magic. I don't think God gave Daniel the kind of wisdom he gave Solomon, although I think there's a measure of, of grace that's being applied to Daniel here. I think in this case, Daniel is, is someone who knows God's word and he's living it out so that he is acting with wisdom. And he's able to, with God's help, tell Nebuchadnezzar what he needs to know from God in the moment. Another thing is Daniel asked the king for time to come up with an interpretation for his, his dream. And then he immediately goes back to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he basically says, all right, we need to have a, we need to have a prayer meeting. And uh, what I think this is an acknowledgment of is it represents the community of faith that we all need when crises hit. Isn't it our tendency sometimes that when like, stuff goes bad, we don't want to tell anybody? We're worried about our reputation. Worried about how people are going to judge us, what they're gonna think of us. Man, you're gonna think that I'm weak or I'm just stupid, or how in the world could you get yourself in a predicament like this? That's not what Daniel does. He actually goes to his friends and he says, Look, we need to have a prayer meeting. Let's pray that God would reveal himself in his compassion and mercy. Let's pray that God will reveal himself to us. And he seems to do this not out of self-interest, but in an opportunity. To glorify God. I think the admiral thing that we see it, particularly in verse 19, is when Daniel gets the answer, he, he immediately follows it up with praise and worship. Look at verse 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the God of uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge. To those who have understanding, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you praise and thanks. For you have given me wisdom in mind and might, and have now made uh, known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matters. Obviously, the emphasis was my, my own, right? But I think we're supposed to pay attention to that. Notice the humility that Daniel is, is kind of implementing here, portraying rather. I think the temptation would be to take credit and, and prove himself, to, to go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, king, all your other foolish counselors, they, they've all failed you. I, I'm the real deal. I, I have your dream. I have the interpretation, and, and I've come to save the world. Like. I am Superman, right? I mean, it's, it would be easy for, for him to think that, but, but Daniel doesn't do that. Instead, he praises God for his eternal wisdom and power. He praises God that God is in control of history. Now, some might say, well, of course Daniel is praising God. He got the answer that he was looking for. I mean, who wouldn't praise God when things are going right? We're going to see this in a couple of uh, verses I don't actually know if Daniel got the, the message that he really was hoping to, to, to have to take the king Nebuchadnezzar. Because if you read ahead, you realize, oh my gosh, this is a negative message and the king is going to go berserk. Because basically the, that, the, the message that Daniel gets to take back to the king is, is this. Your kingdom is not going to last, Nebuchadnezzar. A little stone and cut by human hands is going to be going to bring it crashing to the ground. And though it's a rain of gold, it'll not be the permanent rain of the kingdom of God. That's not a message that Nebuchadnezzar is going to want to hear. And unless you have courage, that's not a message that you as a, as a message bearer, wants to take to a, a frantic, frustrated, insecure king. Like Nebuchadnezzar, and yet Daniel thanks God for the interpretation and he takes it to the king. Why? Because he's a bearer of truth. He's a bearer of truth. We bear bear witness to a new way of being. That's what God calls you to as a Christian, as someone who, who professes faith in Jesus. We have an entire way of being. God is the one that prescribes our worldview. The world says Yahweh is a non-factor, but here's what Daniel says in this moment. You need to look up to Yahweh because he's your only hope, because your king was about to be torn from you. I think another thing that we can see here is, is the trust that Daniel earns from this king. Look at verse 25. Then King Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, "'I have found among the exiles from Judah "'a man who will make known to the king the interpretation.'" The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "'Are you able to make known to me the dream "'that I have seen and its interpretation?' And Daniel answered the king and said, I love this part, "'No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers "'can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, "'but there is a God in heaven.'" who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would happen after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known To the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. We should find it interesting that the king can't trust his own counselors, the the enchanters, the sorcerers, the the necromancers, the, the Chaldeans, but for some reason, he trusts the exiled Daniel to come in and tell him not only the dream, but its interpretation. And we have to ask why. And here's what I think. I think it's because the king knows that his counselors care more about what he thinks of them than they do about telling the truth. It would have been very apparent to King Nebuchadnezzar from the moment that Daniel began to speak that Daniel doesn't care what the king thinks about his message because Daniel is invested in heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Daniel could care less what the greatest king on earth thinks because his investment is in God alone. Daniel witnesses to the presence and involvement of God. He stands in front of the most powerful man, and he tells him, King, your worldview is broken. You have a problem, and you're looking for the solution, but you're looking in the wrong place. Nebuchadnezzar is looking horizontally at around him, and it fails him. What does Daniel say? Looking horizontally is not going to help you. you got to look up because when you look up, you're going to see the one who's in charge of this all. There is a God in heaven. What if if many of us lived with that quality about our lives as we face the world around us, to care a little bit less about about what the world thinks, and to care a lot more about what God thinks, because our investments are in him and the hope of his eternal kingdom, but more so to have Courage that when the world says God is a non-factor, we would echo Daniel and say, no, actually, God is your only hope. And that brings us to the last thing that I want us to see in our text, and it's a kingdom that will not prevail. And so the, the, the dream and interpretation given to Daniel were actually quite simple and yet the interpretation of it is, is immensely profound. We're not going to read all of these, all these verses because that would take up too much time. And so let me just articulate what the dream is, and then we'll read, read a few verses about its interpretation and then apply it to our lives. Firstly, in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant statue, and it's made up of four parts. The head is gold, the chest and arms are silver, the middle part, the midriff, and the thighs are bronze, the legs are iron, and the, the feet are uh, a mixture of, of clay and of iron. And while Nebuchadnezzar is watching, it's almost like a videotape goes across his mind in his dream. And he sees a rock that's cut out, not by any human agency or human hands. And this rock, I guess, is dropped, and it strikes the statue on its feet. And guess What happens? the the whole statue disintegrates. And it not only disintegrates, it blows away like chaff in the wind as if it didn't even exist. And from there, this rock grows into this huge mountain and the interpretation says it fills the whole earth. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's weird. Another of you are saying, I get it. I I see what God is doing. Which which one are you? (laughs) All right, I'm going to explain it. Here's how Daniel interpreted the dream. Let's read a, read a little bit of scripture. Verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven the, has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory. Let me start right there. Doesn't that sound godlike? Like, like, like Daniel is ascribing like a God, godlike qualities to this Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 38. And into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar. It's the God of heaven who's given him dominion and power and glory. But, but here's what Daniel is saying to the king. Obviously, God is saying this through Daniel. He's saying, you, you know the kingdom that you have. You know the power that you have? You know the might that you have? You know the animals that you have, like even the birds that are flying around in your kingdom? Guess what? They firstly belong to me. They firstly belong to God. And God has given them to you. You can't take credit for any of it. God gave them to you. You didn't get any of that on your own accord. You have it because God wanted you to have it. That's what he's telling it to Nebuchadnezzar. Not because you were uniquely worthy of power and might, but because God gives power and glory and might to whomever he chooses to give glory and power and might to. And that's kind of bold for Daniel to say those kind of things to a man that could just like chop his head off, like right in the midst of mid-sentence, right? He doesn't stop there, verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And then verse 43, and you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So here's here's what's going on. After the interpretation, there's going to be, uh, basically, after Nebuchadnezzar's time, rather, there's going to come other kingdoms all of them being inferior to the one that perceives it. The, the very last kingdom will be as strong as iron, yet in the end it will prove unstable because it's going to be divided. The people of that nation are going to be divided. And here's the thing to, to grasp, I think. In Nebuchadnezzar's worldview, there's no way that, that verse 39 could ever happen. There's no way that it could be possible. There's no way that in an inferior, insignificant, smaller, nation anywhere on earth at his time could come and in any way overthrow a nation like his. And so what verse 39 is doing is pressing, Dan- pressing Nebuchadnezzar and his worldview to something that he thinks there's no way this is going to happen. He has this perspective that might makes right. The stronger I am, the more I'm going to be able to wield my influence over everything that exists. Might makes right, and an inferior kingdom can't defeat an, uh, an inferior kingdom. But Daniel basically says, King, everything you have has been given to you, and an inferior kingdom will take it away just to illustrate just how sovereign my God is. And this again is truth telling. This is Daniel having the truth, uh, having the, the courage to say what thus saith the Lord. Just having the courage to bear witness to the truth and the culture of lies. Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him, you're thinking about your problems all wrong. Everything you've been given, you've been given by God. It's a privilege. It will one day be taken away. And so while you have the opportunity, your only hope is to give glory to God. Here's how the text finishes. Verse 44. These are my favorite verses. Like I say this every week. These are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Verse 44 and verse 45. You can sum up the story of our Bible in verse 44 and verse 45. And in the days of of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to them an end, and it it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And if you know what that means, then you say amen. Amen. Say amen anyway. Amen. amen. Here's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. He says, your kingdom is going to fall. Not only that, your kingdom is going to fail. And and there's going to be others inferior to you that will follow and they will fall and fail as well. At some future glorious time, and here's the good part. God is going to establish his final kingdom, which ultimately will destroy all other earthly kingdoms. It's going to start small. Like it's going to seem so insignificant. You're going to you're going like, to look at it with squinting eyes and say, what in the world is that? And yet it's going to grow to fill the earth. And unlike all other earthly kingdoms, Daniel interprets the dream. Set. It's going to last forever. Now, let's, let's talk Bible knowledge. So many of you have read these words. You've read commentaries. You've seen videos that that, uh, that puts into this text, and, and rightly so, um, that this, this vision is describing four empires, or kingdoms, and it actually does do that. And if Babylon is the first of those kingdoms, scholars say history helps us identify the other three. And I'm not saying those are insignificant, but what I would uh, encourage you in is is simply this, that the Bible is not trying to be a history textbook. The Bible corroborates history, and we can learn about the history of our world from what's going on parallel to, to the things that are going on on the earth, from the narrative of the Bible, but the Bible is interested in not just giving us history, it's giving us his story, his story, right? It's giving us the story of God, more specifically, what Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation reveal, our philosophy of what the future holds and when that will come to pass. So that's what's happening here. We don't need to be in, we don't need to necessarily concern ourselves with Babylon and media, Persia, Greece, Rome, and all those things although those nations have significance because what happened in those nations are being portrayed here in the Bible. Before it happens, what's God trying to tell us? There's a kingdom coming and it will be a forever kingdom. And that's the one you want to associate with. And so here's the question for us as I slowly close. Is firstly this. What does this teach us and how in the world are we supposed to respond? Right? What does this teach us? Let me give you two things. Firstly, life is a clash of kingdoms. I don't know if I even have this written down. I don't, all right? Life is a clash of kingdoms. I'm an I'm a avid reader and supporter of Paul Tripp. Paul, uh, David Tripp, he's a pastor, author, conference speaker. I love what he writes. And Paul Tripp says this. He says, we're always vying for our own kingdom. We place a crown on our head, we build our throne, and then guess what? We sit on it. We want to be people who rule over ourselves. We make our own laws. We organize our lives in a way that suits us and that works. And when that works out fine, we're happy until we have to contend with God and his kingdom. And that really is what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing in our narrative. He, he contends with God and his kingdom and he just can't contend. But, but neither can we. And of course the higher message is is that God is one that causes both people and nations to rise and fall. Here's the point you need to keep. God gives earthly glory and power. They don't come come from our own strength. And that's both for individual people, but it's also for nations. God is the one that gives glory and power. If you are successful in life, God is the one that has made you successful. If our nation thrives and flourishes, God is the cause of that. It has no attribution to all of us who are here. The unparalleled sovereignty, power, and acclaim that God gives Nebuchadnezzar is akin to the language we read in creation with Adam. And if you know the the creation story, Adam was God's vice regent. He had dominion over everything, and those things that wouldn't submit to him, God told him to, to subjugate, to subdue it. And yet Adam was never to live outside of a dependence upon God. And the moment he disobeyed, the moment that he and, and Eve sinned and did what God said not to do, we're taught the lesson that God, that the God that exalts us, can just as easily bring us back to dust. That's what he's trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar. So here's the question for us, strange church: Whose kingdom are you living for? For your own? Are you making your crown? building your throne, sitting on it and ruling over your own life to the neglect of God and his kingdom. Because here's what this text tells us, and it it rings true, only one kingdom will last. The second thing is the kingdom of God brings lasting hope. The kingdom of God brings lasting hope. God's kingdom enters the chaos and the hopelessness of human history, and it brings fresh and lasting hope to all of humanity. We see this in every epoch of of redemptive history. Uh, If you recall the Genesis story again, the the, the sin of Genesis 3 leads to the gospel hope of Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve sin, God curses them. He's getting ready to kick them out of the garden. But before he does that, he says, the the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. What's that mean? It's it's what's happening in in our text, that ultimately God and his kingdom are going to, to triumph. The corruption on earth that leads to the flood in Genesis 6, likewise, ends with God extending his covenant to Noah, and he gives, uh, he gives us the sign of the rainbow, a remembrance that he's never going to destroy the earth by water again. Likewise, the despair of Genesis 11, remember the, the, the incident of Tower of Babel, where humanity comes together, they're all saying the same language, they decide to build a tower, and they're going to like, alright, we're going to build ourselves a, a, a way up to God, so that we ultimately can be God, And what does God do? He confounds the language, tears down their tower and scatters humanity to the four winds. And yet on the tails of that sin, what does God do? He calls Abraham in Genesis 12, the man of faith. And I think it's the same with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The final word of history isn't some reconstructed version of a a statue of man. Rather, God is doing something very radical and we've, we've read it already in Daniel in verse 34 and 35. It, it speaks of a stone Look at verse 34 real quick I'm out of time As you look a stone was cut out by by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces Then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold all together, were broken into pieces and became the chaff of the summer of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Who, who is the stone that this is speaking of? Some translations would use the word rock. It's talking about Jesus, right? The, the, the stone is none other than Jesus Paul would say in Ephesians 1 chapter 9, he reminds us the mystery of the ages that has now been revealed to those of us who live in the faithfulness of the fullness of times is God's plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. The the, the stone, the rock, even Jesus Christ, the gospel writer in Mark chapter one, verse 15, tells us that Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. In Luke 20, Jesus tells the parable of a son of a vineyard owner who the tenants reject and ultimately they kill. And at the end of this parable, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. Here's what it says. It says, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he adds these words, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it's going to crush him. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is prophesying but he's echoing the very words we've read from Daniel. Primarily verse 34 and 35 that we just read, but also my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 44 and 45. Jesus is identifying himself as not just Israel's Messiah, but this stone that crushes the kingdom of the world. Amen to that. And so how do we respond? I think one thing that separates Christianity from Non-Christianity is definitely how we respond, right? In the end, God wins. You gotta remember that. Like life will weigh us down. There'll be things that, we, that, that are pressing in on us that, that, for, that seemingly force us to think about our own situation, the plight of it all, and it's like I'm under a rock and in a hard place, and the Bible wants you to remember God wins. God is going to win. Crises and challenges are given by God for a purpose, and so we stay calm, not like Daniel does. You stay calm because God has given it to you to do so by spirit. We stay calm knowing that God really is in control. And if I could give you two words of comfort to to leave you with, firstly. We already belong to this kingdom. If you profess faith in Jesus, if you have trusted in him for salvation, then you, and you're following him, you are already a part of his kingdom. And so the exhortation is, live like it. That's what we see in Daniel. He's living like he's a part of an eternal kingdom. It doesn't mean that life's going to go easy for him. It doesn't mean that his very actions of truth-bearing might not cost him his life. But when we live in the reality of the kingdom of God, it reminds us that, you know what? There's good news for me in the person and work of Jesus that tells me that my suffering is not in vain. There's a purpose for it. It means that you're, you owe your allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom. I, I, I think the unfortunate thing. Is that we live in a country where we aren't openly persecuted for our faith, but we are daily enticed by the value system and the worldview of our culture is around us, and it presses us in to conform to 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 its measures. And if anything, here's what this text is is encouraging you to do and to be: It's to to be ready to stand firm and to show your allegiance to God's kingdom, for that's the only kingdom that's going to prevail. Here's the last thing. As people of God, we have the assurance from God, from his word, that his kingdom will ultimately triumph. I, I think of the encouragement of Daniel and his friends when they heard the interpretation. That, all right, man, this is, this is hard. We're in captivity. We don't know if we're ever going like, to be anything but slaves. And yet, here's what they hear. They hear that God's kingdom is going to destroy the kingdoms of the world, and it will ultimately prevail. And, and that's not just their hope, that's our hope. It's not in the strength of our economy, Americans. It's not in the might of our military, soldiers. It's not in the wisdom of our leaders, those of you that work in the government, put against the rest of the world. I mean, that stuff comes and goes with whatever administration's in charge of our country, right? Our hope has to be in God and his kingdom. A kingdom that won't fade, and a kingdom that won't fail. Amen. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your words. More than that, thank you for a kingdom that endures forever. Lord, this idea of kingdom is, is definitely elusive to us. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. You come and you say, because you're here, Jesus, that the kingdom comes with you. But they were looking and it's like, well, where is it? We want to touch it, we want to taste it, we want to feel it, we want to at least sense it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, everyone in this room and everyone who's listening, to to have eyes of faith, to receive the kingdom as you give it, to embody it as you dwell in us by your Spirit, to know that when you come and bring the kingdom, you entrust us as agents of that kingdom so that with our actions, even with our voices and our courage lived out amongst a culture that doesn't always accept us, that you're causing the kingdom to grow. And as we grow, you, uh, you grow your kingdom. And one day that kingdom will not only be known and seen and visible, it's going to expand. It's going to crush every other kingdom, and we'll live gloriously forever with you. That's not just our hope. You've said it, and it's going to happen. And so, Lord God, help us to rejoice in that and to give you thanks and glory, for you deserve it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.